The first new car that I ever enjoyed as a personal possession was a 2009 Toyota Camry. Now, everything leading up to that was kind of a, a clunker. I mean, they weren't terrible cars, but they weren't the best cars either. When I got into this car, the smell was like what I imagine the smell of angel skin, perhaps. It drove as smooth as a baby's bottom. Uh, it, it had power. When you turn on the air conditioner, that air was so cold, I think it would make the Antarctic even colder. It was so good. Everything about the car was just amazing. I enjoyed it so much. I had such a great time with it. And part of the reason I was able to enjoy it so much is because I had so many cars before that that weren't nearly as good. I feel like all the things that led up to that point actually made it easier for me to really enjoy the things that we were able to, to have at that point in our lives. One of the challenges that you and I will face being South Orange County residents is that we have so many good things that we expect a certain level of life to happen for us. And if we don't get that level, we get disappointed. We are tempted to grumble and complain because our, our standards are up here. And if we get anything below that, it hurts a lot more. We have a similar struggle when it comes to understanding the Bible's take on the old covenant. You and I are in the new covenant right now. We've never known anything different. We've always lived in the South Orange County of spirituality. We've always had Jesus as our great high priest. We've always had salvation by grace through faith. We don't know what it's like to come from, you know, the neck of the woods where the old covenant ruled and reigned. Chapter 8 of Hebrews is really meant to help us feel the weight of the difference between the Old and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And one of the goals that I have for tonight is to, in your mind at least, to be able to appreciate with great, deep gratitude the New Covenant in all of its fullness and riches. This begins a new section for us. We're not going to cover it entirely, but we're going to cover all of chapter 8 tonight. And really the goal for us is to understand, uh, work hard at understanding the riches of what we have in Christ in the new covenant. Um, and unless we really understand it, we're never going to really appreciate what we have. It's kind of like when your parents say, look, before you were born, your dad and I, we, you know, we really struggled to pull things together. We ate bean and cheese burritos and we really worked hard to get to where we are now. And we were able to buy this house in South Orange County 30 years ago. And you're the benefactor. You get to enjoy this. But we worked really hard to get here. And in a similar sense, our spiritual ancestors are saying, look, you don't understand what it took to get you to where you are right now. There was a long season of waiting and praying and seeking for God to answer and deliver this amazing thing called the new covenant. And what we need to do tonight is to not only see that and recognize that, but to have a, uh, a deep gratitude for it that is expressed, um, that is identified because of what Jesus has done for us. So please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to cover all 13 verses tonight. It's going to go pretty rapidly, so please hang on tight. We're actually going to start just a tad bit before chapter 8 into verse 26. So if you have your Bible, you're going to want to have it with you tonight. Now turn it, open it to Hebrews chapter 7. Look at verse 26. We covered this last week, but let's reorient ourselves. He says here in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, he says, Look, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 
And this kind of high priest, that was, uh, that was exactly what we needed. In fact, this kind of high priest is, is a, essentially the point of what we're about to read tonight. We have this high priest, and, and we should really understand that this high priest is a special, unique person in all of human history, which is why Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 says this. Now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. The high priest we just read about in chapter 7, yeah, we got that. Everything that we've been reading up through chapter 7 of Hebrews, the point is we have this great high priest. We have this privileged position to know this high priest and to love him. Well, tell us more about this high priest in verse 1. He says, this high priest is one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. That's what he's saying there in the majesty in heaven. And really, this culminates into a crescendo of, look, you have great riches. You live in South Orange County of, spiritual, uh, of spirit, the spirituality. You are receiving these great blessings. You're the Beverly Hills. You're the Malibu. You should recognize that. How should we respond as humans? Well, at minimum this. You should ascribe, declare the great glory, honor, and praise for Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who has ushered us in to this new covenant New Covenant. I'm using terms that some of you may not be familiar with. The Old Covenant is the old way God dealt with his people, specifically Israel. The New Covenant is the way that he now deals with all people, whether they're Israelites, Jewish by ethnicity, or whether they're Gentiles like you and I. Actually, I'm point some odd percent Ashkenazi Jew, so I'm technically one of God's chosen people, but that's neither here nor there. That's not my point. Our response to this should be, hey, Jesus deserves glory, honor, and praise. Jesus deserves to be glorified, honored, and praised. Sometimes I like seeing what's up with the, with the, with the atheists. And I know that they're, they're big on doing campaigns. They're really loud for, believing, for not believing certain things. They're atheists, right? They, it's a negated term. They're atheists. They don't believe in something. And yet, they're very vocal, and they want to win a lot of people to their non-belief system. One of the ways they do that is by using billboards. And one of their billboards that came to my attention is this one that says, Are you good without God? And the subtext of that is millions are. There's a lot of people around the world who don't need God to be good. Are you one of them? Congratulations. You don't need religion. That's essentially the point. This group of people, the, uh, the Coalition for Reason, uh, are big about this. They have billboards all over the place. And are you good without God? Millions are good without God. You don't need God after all. So if you're here, you're seeing this, and you're like, yeah, we don't need God after all. We're good without him, aren't we? I was just walking an old lady across the streets. And I took her most of the way. It was great. You know, I, was in that. I donated money to charity. I think they're going to refer to these things. And of course, Christians will respond like, hey, atheists, we're glad that you're wrong. <laughs> we, we think that you're totally wrong about this. But, but here's the problem with, with billboards and, and concepts like that. Really, the question for Christians is not whether you can be good without God. Uh, there can be policemen and uh, senators and people that give away a ton of money and they don't have to be a Christian. That's not the question for us. When we think about why Christianity is different from everything else that we offer, the question we're answering is not, can you be good without God? In a way, yes, you can be. So if you're here and you're saying, I don't need religion because I'm pretty good without religion, I would say, okay, maybe, maybe you're good in a lateral sense if you're comparing one to another. The question for Christians is not, can you be good without God? Is how can we be right with God? There's a difference. You see that? It's not, can we be good without him? It's can, how do we be right with him? Because his standard is not you're better than the guy sitting next to you or the girl sitting next to you. The standard is absolute perfection. How do you reach that standard since you've already failed? And that's where the Christian gospel comes in. That's where the new covenant comes in. 
specifically the high priest. The new covenant understands that we need someone to go between us to make us right with God. Otherwise, we have no chance because no one is good, not even one. Romans chapter 3, Paul reminds us, no one is good enough. You might be a really good person. In fact, many of you, I know you, you're good kids. And I tell people that. They're good kids. This, guy, this guy's a good kid. This girl's a good girl. She's a good kid. But when I say that, I trust that you understand. I'm not saying absolutely good. When someone came to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must we do to be saved? Jesus says, oh, hold on a second. What do you mean by good? Explain yourself. Because what he's trying to say is, look, there is a relative good, like a subjective, we're good, but then there is an absolute good that God demands from us. And again, the Christian answer is not to the question, can we be good without God? Well, certainly, we could be good people. We could be good citizens. We could be laterally good. The question is, how can we be right with God? Enter Jesus. Jesus, be, Jesus enters as our great high priest. Now, the role of the high priest in Israel, as you recall, was the mediator between God and the Israelites. And his job was to sacrifice on behalf of the people in order for them to be right with God, at least in a temporary sense, not in an ultimate forever sense. His job was to be temporarily um, their go-between. Jesus doesn't just temporarily make us right with God. Jesus makes us permanently right with God, which is why we think about him far differently than anyone else. When we think about Jesus, we're talking to our unsaved friends or even our, our saved friends. We should be the most, uh, the most effusive in our praise for him. Why? Well, first of all, he is abounding in glory. This is one of the points that the, the Hebrew author wants us to see. He's abounding in glory. You might remember when we started the series way back last year, Hebrews chapter 1 said, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of the Father's nature. That's Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Jesus contains glory that no one else does. I told you a few times that I've had the privilege of interacting with celebrity level people. A few times, not, not a lot, but a few times. My brother used to have this debilitating disease that was going to kill him. Uh, way back when he was young. And because of that, we were part of these, like, I don't know, parties, I guess, where people of some kind of celebrity status would show up and they'd be like, oh, hey, you're dying. I got to meet you, you know? And so I've met some people. And it's interesting being in their presence because they carry themselves in a certain way. And maybe it was just in my mind, but I always feel like, oh man, I, I don't know what to say to you. I accidentally offended a celebrity so bad. I've never lived it down. I'll tell you about it one day, but he's dead now. And I feel even more dead because I can't, I can't apologize. It's just over. I offended him so badly. Okay, you want to know what the story was? Okay. So I don't want to tell you who it is because some of you might know who I'm talking about. So he's visiting the hospital. He's doing this really kind thing, hanging out in the cancer ward with all these kids. And I, he said, anyone have any questions for me? Really nice guy. And I said, yeah, I do. I didn't know what I was doing. I just raised my hand. Yes, yeah, sir, you in the front. I said, oh, in one of the episodes of the show that you're in, you got this massive rash on your face. Do you still have that going on right now? <laughs> he didn't. I could tell that he was, well, maybe angry and embarrassed at the same time. I, I don't know what it was, but I knew at that point. Like it, my inner voice is like, Rod, you done messed up. <laughs> Probably a good time to get up and leave. And I didn't. I stayed there and I wallowed in my shame and I let it go. But being in his presence was a bit nerve-wracking. I'm not surprised I said something so stupid because I was just unaware about the kind of presence these guys had. Now, when you think about Jesus compared to these human celebrities, Jesus transcends them infinitely. 
From Bieber to Beyonce, Jesus is far better and far greater and heavier. And he's perfect on top of that. His glory surpasses all earthly measures. Uh, and there's Hebrews 1.3, as I already told you. Jesus des des deserves our glory, honor, and praise, not only because he's abounding in glory, but as you see here, look, uh, he says, the point of what we're saying is this. We have a high priest, one who is seated. Pop quiz. How many chairs were in the tabernacle or the temple? Raise your hand if you think more than five. Anyone want to be brave about this? More than one. How many think one? You know, okay, all right, one. Now, if you're technical, you're going to call me on this, but I'm going to say there's no seats. There's no seats in the tabernacle. Well, you might say, well, well Pastor Rod, what about, what about the Ark of the Covenant? Isn't that called the mercy seats after all? Yes, you are Bible students. That's correct. But no one was sitting on that. It was God's throne. It was his symbolic throne. In the tabernacle and temple, there were no seats. There was no recliners. There was no cushy chairs to, to sit and enjoy yourself. Why? Well, because the job of the great high priest was never finished. You sit down after you're finished with something. You relax. You're sitting. You're enjoying. There was no seats there. That tells us Jesus has accomplished perfect salvation. It has been affected. It has been accomplished. Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of the Father. No more work to be done as it relates to your salvation. No more bulls to be slaughtered. No more sheep to be slit on their throat. They're done. We just sang it. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a blood red stain, but Jesus washed it white as snow. The job has been completed. No more applications necessary for your salvation. But it gets better. He's not only sitting at the right hand, or he's not only sitting rather, he's sitting in a certain area. Jesus is located not in any place, but he's, seated, he's sitting at the right hand of God. He has a privileged position and he's there not not just because he's the priest, he's there because he is the king priest or the priest king of all humanity. For all those who trust in him, Jesus sits at the right hand of God as the ruler and reigner of all humanity and the one who goes between. He's the mediator. He's exalted. The Father has exalted him as high as the heavens go. In fact, one of the verses that we looked at last week was Psalm 110.1. And I want to show you something really quick here in case it wasn't abundantly clear last week. Psalm 110.1, there's two uses of the word Lord in the, first in the first verse. The Lord says to my Lord. The first Lord in that verse is capital L-O-R-D, which you should know refers to who? It's Yahweh. Lord, when it's in capital letters in your Old Testament Bible, uh, refers to the letters well, doesn't, the Hebrew letters. It refers to God's proper name. So if you were God, it would say, uh, Sarah says to the Lord. Well, that's a bad God. I don't want to use Sarah. Uh, your name says to that person. So L-O-R-D, capital, is referring to God's proper name. Lowercase L-O-R-D is referring to Adonai. Lord as in master or, uh, yeah, Lord master. So in, in Psalm 110.1, you have this idea that Jesus um, that the Father is talking to the Lord, Jesus Christ, and saying, sit at my right hand. This is happening between God the Father and God the Son. So what you have here is an exalted priest king of all humanity. Now let me just make one quick point on this for you guys. One of the problems that you and I have, well, let me just ask you about your prayer life for one quick second here. We're not talking about worship singing songs, although this is included. When you're praying, uh, how much of your prayer is adoration and worship of the Lord that you 
pray to. And how much of your prayer is, Lord, please do this, please do that, please save this person. And those are not bad prayers, but what I want you to think about is the content or the, the quantity of your prayer toward God that is worshipful, that ascribes him glory, honor, and praise. You might remember a long time ago, you, you might have heard of the ACTS prayer, A-C-T-S, and it stands for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and S for supplication, or it stands for asking God for things. Adoration is the, the A part of that ACTS prayer, and that's something that would be very helpful for you to do. You're going to be worshiping Jesus for the rest of your life. And yet I can promise you, for most of you, probably, you're not practicing your worship. You just take it for granted. I'll sing a couple songs, but you're not growing in your ability to worship your king, your high priest, king, savior. And you should. You should get good at worshiping and ascribing honor, glory, and praise to Jesus. One of those ways you could do that, of course, is the worship music, but there's a million other ways, things that you should keep in mind. In verses 2 through 5, we elaborate on Jesus' role. Jesus is a minister in the holy places. Remember, that's what the high priest does. He's supposed to minister in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, if Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. That's the tribe of Levi. And Jesus isn't part of the tribe of Levi. He's a part of the tribe of Judah. Verse 5. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tents, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The author, the preacher of Hebrews is saying, look, Jesus, I don't know if you noticed this. Take a look at the screen here. You'll notice that there's, there's one word that's repeated here over and over again. And that word, you'll notice here, he is offering, he is offering, he is offering. The, the whole purpose of the high priest was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And the preacher is now saying, look, Jesus came to offer sacrifices on your behalf, and that sacrifice wasn't done in the earthly tent. It was done in the heavenly tent. Jesus is in the true tabernacle. Now, when I say the word tabernacle, you might think of this thing, and that's true. The tabernacle is literally the tent. It is the tent where God established a place where he could connect with Israel. And he gives Moses instructions. It says, look, Moses, make the tabernacle just like what you see in heaven. In other words, the tabernacle is a copy or, a, or a, uh, an image of what the heavenly tabernacle looks like, the heavenly throne room. And so that's what he did. He did that. He built it according to God's specifications. And now Jesus serves not in this place where there's a physical tent, but in the holy place where there is no tent. It is the reality. It is the ultimate, uh, the ultimate expression of our salvation. For you and I, we never will know what that's like. You and I will never know what it's like to bring a ram to a priest and say, slaughter this ram for me. Here's the way I've sinned. I need you to, I need you to do this on my behalf. You and I will never know what it's like, maybe in the, the millennial kingdom, however, you and I will never know what it's like to have to go through the purification rituals that Israel had to go through. You and I will never know what it's like to wear the burden of the Old Testament law on our back. Why? Well, because we're New Testament Christians. Here's my only point with that. That ought to cause you to say, thank you, God, that I don't have to go through that. Thank you, God, that all these things are fulfilled in Christ. I put it like this, point number two. You should appreciate your privileged place in redemptive history. Appreciate your privileged place in redemptive history. Redemptive history refers to the all of human history where God was affecting the salvation of humanity. 
you are in a special time and place where you get to look backward and see all that God did through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then you get to see how their, the, the prophecies were filled in Jesus. And you can now see how Jesus lived and died in your place and rose from the dead for our justification. You get to look back at that and say, wow, what an amazing fulfillment of all the things that God has promised. If you just look 100 years ago in L.A., you might notice that L.A. is radically different. A hundred years ago in L.A., Los Angeles, they were using horse and buggy. And, you know, the, the recent invention of the Model T, a few other cars there. You'll notice there's no traffic cones or there's no traffic lights there. Everyone's just kind of walking across the streets. They lived differently. They had trolleys. and tra I mean, it's just really cool to look back at these. I love watching these videos because they give me a glimpse into what life used to look like. And so this company here, they color corrected it as best they could. They stabilized it. They fixed the speed on it. And you'll notice how vastly different life is. If you've been to Los Angeles anytime recently, you'll know that it's a lot different than what it used to be. But this is the very same place, just 100 years before. You and I can look back at this and say, wow, what, a, what an incredible thing it is to be in a car. And, and look, there's no air conditioning in that car. There's no, I mean, I don't think there's a radio in there. There's, there's I mean, I don't know how many miles per gallon it gets, but probably better than our situation right now. But I mean, just look at the life that they used to live and how vastly different that is. Guys on a bike riding in the middle of the street. You'll see kids running across. This guy running, he almost got hit by a car. Doesn't care, he's running across the street. Like that's the way life was. I recently went up north, uh, Northern California to this place. He almost got hit by the car. That kid's not even paying attention. Look both ways before you cross. Parents failed him. I went up to Apple, Apple Camp, Angel Camp rather, uh, Northern California, and we went to their museum and they had these old timey wagons. And I, I told my kids, look, imagine if we came to Northern California in this thing. And they're like, whoa. And I'm like, yeah, whoa. How nice you have it. Your cushy life, you. What an amazing life. I mean, but think about that. People traveled on these things. What would, have, what would it have been like for you to come to church tonight in a wagon? I mean, that'd be kind of cool. That'd be enjoyable. Or a buggy drawn by a horse. Now, one thing I never thought about in, in a buggy, I mean, if you're behind a horse, and the horse has got to go, like he lifts up his tail, that's a bad place to be. Don't want to be behind a horse when he's doing his business. But that's part of what it was. And I really enjoyed this because it helped me connect, again, what the benefits and privileges are. I mean, there's, a, there's a, one of my, I don't know if this is my picture. No, that's not my picture. That's someone else's. But they had a water, a, a water, uh, not a water truck, that yellow thing. That yellow thing, that's a truck that has water in it. <laughs> anyway, when you look at the past, and you see how things were. They help you appreciate how things are. And the same is true with our understanding of the Old Covenant. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. I want to give you just a brief review of how Peter conceived of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, when they saw types and shadows. They saw the way that things were, and they can now appreciate the way things are so much more. Take a look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 with me. He said, concerning this salvation, the salvation that was promised by God, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully. They produced the word of God as God gave them utterance, and they were trying to figure out what is, what is God saying through, I don't know, Isaiah 53. What's God promising? Who is this? When is this? Verse 11, they were inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories his suffering and his resurrection and his exaltation. Verse 12, it was revealed to them 
that they were serving, not themselves. They weren't, the, the prophecies that God gave them weren't for that time and season. They were for you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. There was a season of biblical history where we didn't know who Jesus was. We had pictures and images. We had types and shadows. We had evidence in the text that told us, okay, this is what he's going to be like. And so they wanted to know, what was he like? Angels didn't know. But you know. You know. And so Peter says, look, you know the salvation God promised. You see clearly what they only saw in shadows. What should we do with that? Peter says, well, therefore, and what would you say about that? You get to live on the other side of the cross and the other side of the old covenant. What should you do about that? Here's what Peter says. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, knowing the past, look forward to and hope in the future. Knowing what God has done for you, look forward to what God will do for you. Put your hope in that, trust in that. Give that your attention. Verse 14, he continues on. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance when you didn't know Christ. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 1, you shall be holy for I am holy. Peter continues on telling you, look, you ought to appreciate what God has done for you. Look at the past, look forward to the future, but also let that inspire you and motivate you to, to excel and grow in your holiness. Not to take it easy and say, well, man, I don't have to offer goads. I don't have to go to do sacrifices. Therefore, I'm just going to step off the gas a little bit and let God just take me and carry me away. He says, no, now that you don't have that, you should be all the more excited and energized to pursue holiness because he gave himself for you. Peter continues on with a few other things that I would like for you to read at some point. We won't cover it tonight. But what I want you to do is really to appreciate your place in redemptive history. I want you to know they only saw shadows. They only saw vague future predictions about what Christ would be, what he would do on your behalf. It's a difference between a soda and a LaCroix. The LaCroix is like, oh, almost a flavor. The soda actually is the flavor, right? I like LaCroix, don't get me wrong. But there's a difference there. If you want to really enjoy a flavor, you don't go for a LaCroix. You just don't. If you want to enjoy a real flavor, you pick up an actual soda. And that's what these guys were dealing with. They had the essence. They did not have the substance, the prophecies, the sacrificial system, all of these things. They were in a waiting pattern saying, what is happening out there? They couldn't see clearly. You see the substance. You're able to see how the Old Testament and the New Testament connect. You're able to see the fulfillment that Christ offers for us. You live in the future. The future is now. You know what we're waiting on? I mean, the Bible has come to pass as far. You know what we're waiting on? We're waiting on the next event on the end times calendar, which is Christ's rapture. When he comes back for his people, and sometimes it's referred to as the secret rapture because we believe that Scripture teaches Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night and he's going to steal his people away and usher in the next seven years called the tribulation. Tribulation happens, bad time, the time of Jacob's trouble, which then after that ushers in the next 1,000 years called the millennial kingdom where Christ establishes his physical rule and reign in Jerusalem. At the end of that, you're going to have the battle of Armageddon where uh, good and evil 
It's not really a fight because Jesus doesn't have to break a sweat, crushes the enemy, and then you have the end of all things, the great white throne judgment, and then you have the establishment of the new Jerusalem. The one thing that we're waiting on right now is not some other uh, fulfillment of prophecy, as we understand. What we're waiting on is the rapture, which biblically speaking, as we understand it, can be any time. Any time Jesus can come back and take us. This is an unknown, unexpected event that could happen at any moment. This is the substance that we see. We're not looking forward to say, okay, Jesus is going to come at this time or this place. I mean, we see substance. We have God's word. You have a Bible in your language. For many of you, you have a leather cover. You have really nice tools, commentaries. You have uh, uh, software resources, and you can go to YouTube and watch all these great teachers. I mean, this is your privileged place, and you ought to know that. I tell my kids all the time, like, I, I didn't grow up dirt poor but maybe plant poor. Like, it's not the dirt, but just step above that. And I appreciate that. I, I really do. I look back at my life and I thank God for the life that I grew up in because I appreciate so much more the good things that God has given us. If you've always grown up with privileges, I'm not looking down on you at all. You just need to know it's harder for us who are privileged to enjoy those privileges as much as we could or should because we're just used to them and they could become commonplace and mundane. Don't let the new covenant be that for you. Christians have to work hard to appreciate the way that things used to be in order to really appreciate the way things are right now. Last few verses here. The preacher leads us into the new covenant. Verses 6 through 13. I'm not going to put this one on the screen, so you're going to need your Bible for this. This is a long text. Uh, he's now going to transition us into saying, look, Jesus, brings, Jesus is serving in a better place. He brings us uh, a better sacrifice. And now Jesus also brings in a better covenant. Take a look at verses 6 through 13 with me. But, it, uh, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. New covenant is better because it comes with better promises, essentially. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second for he finds fault with them when he says, and now he's quoting Jeremiah 31 here, he says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I had made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord. This is the new covenant. Here's, here's what it sounds like. I will put my law into their minds, and I will write them, the law, on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, hey, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And quote, Preacher says, verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The point of this section here is highlighting all the benefits and the values of the new covenant. You might notice your title is TLDR, the new covenant is better. What makes a new covenant better is that it comes with a lot of great upgrades. Point number three, you should value the upgrades of the new covenant value the upgrades of the new covenant. 
Again, hard for us to do because we've, we've never known anything different, but let's, let's do our best. Let's try to identify at least three things that makes the new covenant superior and better than what God previously did with Israel under the old covenant. The first iPhone came out June 29, 2007. It had storage options of 4, 8, or 16 gigs. That was the storage. Flash, the RAM, 128 megabytes. <laughs> Camera on the back, a whopping 2 megapixels. Now, I know 12 megapixels isn't much better, but 2 megapixels, basically nothing. No background running, none of the good stuff. I mean, that was, that was kind of it. It was a basic phone. Only a 3.5-inch display, which is like that. Itty-bitty. I just squint really hard to see it. Most of you have a phone that's like 10 years older than that, give or take, right? 2007. Yeah, you have a phone at least 10 years older than that, most of you, many of you, which is far better, far more superior. In fact, the phones that you guys probably have, people stood in long lines to get, at least they used to, the day of COVID, that's changed things quite a bit. But what you have in your pocket is far better. And I'm all about that. I, I'm on the upgrade cycle with the iPhone because I just, I love the camera. I want the best photos ever. And so I, I go for that. I'm on their leasing program, right? I don't ever have to go without their latest and greatest because I want to make sure I have the best iPhone. I like that. I value the upgrades. And so I value spending money every month to lease my iPhone and make sure that I have the best. You know, the, the upgrades that come with an iPhone are great. The upgrades that come with the new covenant are greater greatest. And I, it's easy for us to look at a phone and say, yeah, I really like its features. It's got three big cameras on the back. You need to, see, I mean, see this in its place. This is junk. I mean, this is, this is going to go in the trash heap eventually. And the new covenant has infinitely greater upgrades. Let me identify three of them for you. First of all, the covenant brings in a internal transformation. The new covenant doesn't let you be happy with just obeying the law on the outside. That was the struggle that Israel had. The law basically said, hey, Israel, do good and you'll be blessed. And what did Israel struggle with? They could never do good. They could never do good enough. They constantly failed. The new covenant, however, in Romans 8.10 says, look, this is the covenant I'm going to make with them. After those days, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their heart. The laws will be on their hearts and on their minds. Internalized transformation. Now, let me talk to you really quickly about, about you being a follower of Christ. Some of you struggle with being obedient toward God. You don't know what this is like. You struggle with being obedient because you may not have that internal change on the inside. That internal change does not make you a perfect Christian, by no means. But it does orient you to say that your deepest desires, your highest and deepest desires are, I want to do what God wants me to do. That's the internal transformation. God deposits within you a change that says, I want to obey God with everything in me. Does that obedience come out all the time? No, it doesn't. But the new covenant does promise an internal change that causes you to long for, to hope for, and to pursue that, uh, that internal uh, yielding to God's spirit. That's called being regenerated or being born again, law from the inside out. Not only that, the new covenant upgrades also include intimacy with God. Old, Old Testament Israel had to tr entrust uh, the high priest, and there was Moses at one point in time, Moses who would stand before Israel. He's the one who got to see God's face-to-face, -face, as it were. And every generation of, of 
Jewish believer up till Jesus had to go through a mediator. They could talk to God, sure, but there was distance there. God was in a tabernacle, and then later God was in a temple, and there was separation. The Holy of Holies was off limits to people like you and I until Jesus. Jesus breaks down that wall, and now it's not, no one's having to say, know the Lord. No, all of us get to know God intimately from the least to the greatest. Jew, Gentile, male, female, everybody gets access to God through Jesus' work on the cross. When Jesus died and he said, Tetelestai, what happened in the temple? Curtain torn in, torn in two. The Holy of Holies was rent and now made open to all who would trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. The third upgrade that Jesus brings in for us, and this is probably one of the biggest ones for us. I mean, all these things matter, but our sin debt is now paid in full. No more repeated offerings. No more having to go and, and bring a new lamb or a new ox or a new whatever. Our sin debt was paid in full. Hebrews 8.12 says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Does God literally forget your sin? No. God knows. He can't, he can't not know he's God. But make no mistake, if you're right with Christ, that sin that has been put on Christ is forever washed away never to be brought up again against you. You're never going to be perfect, never going to get it all together, but you have internal transformation. There's intimacy with God, and your sin debt is paid in full. The New Covenant upgrades list is transformatively different than the Old Covenant. One of the questions that you and I constantly ask, and you may not know this, you may not have ever verbalized this, but the question you and I ask constantly is, do you like me? When we interact with each other and we're talking to each other, you know, if it's not just a boy-girl situation, right, when we're trying to connect with people, the question our internal voice is asking is, do you like me? Am I worthy of your attention? Am I worthy of your, of your affection? Or, or am I someone that you want to be around? Again, you may not articulate that, but that's kind of the background thinking that we all have. Happens to you in high school, happens to adults as well. Do you like me? And I guess it's an important question. I mean, we, we want people to, to like us. We want to have friends. We want to have, you know, connections that are deep and meaningful. And that's fine as far as it goes. Some of you pro project that not only on each other, but you project that to God. God, do you like me? Am I acceptable? Am I worth being part of your creator? Am I someone that you can love? Send in a lot of ways. Can you accept me, God? Do you like me? The answer for every single one of us to that question is, if you are in Christ, you are not only liked, but you are accepted more than you could ever fathom or understand. And the reason you and I, for, for, when I say that, you and I are not like, oh, that's weird. We get that because we live under the beauty of the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated. If you resonate with that at all, if that's something that you know and understand as someone who's enjoyed the benefits of the new covenant, let that inspire and motivate you to love Jesus better, to worship him more faithfully, to offer thanksgiving, Maybe this week as you pray, maybe don't ask for as much. Maybe spend some of your time worshiping, adoring, and praising King Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is better. Let's pray.